Hi, I'm Tony. I'm Patrick. And welcome to Cave to the Cross Apologetics. We are working our way through the book Truth in a Culture of Doubt by Kostenberger, Bach, and Chadwell. And uh, we have uh, gotten to chapter five. So we're about done with the book. There's one more section. Mm -hmm. And then there's also a summary that I noticed in, that mm -hmm. goes through every argument and gives a brief summary of their... She started with that. Yeah. <laughs> right. And uh, so in chapter five, uh, there are several claims. And uh, we've finished uh, claim one. Um, and so now we are on claim two. Claim one was, uh, let's see, the the uh, the chapter itself are many New Testament documents forged, right. right? That was the title of the chapter, and there were five uh, major claims. Claim one was the New Testament Gospels are not historically reliable and are compatible to the various other heretical Gospels because they were not uh, actually written by Jesus' companion, right. right? And we spent some time working through that. Our, our authors, I think, did a good job with that. Now we're on claim two. Claim two says that the first disciples were illiterate mm -hmm. <laughs> and therefore could not have written the parts of the New Testament attributed to them. Right. Because right? how can illiterate people write? Right. Or read. Yeah. And, and there's obviously no one else around them to help them with any of this. So. That's right. Yeah. So they're on their own and how could they do anything? <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Wonder how they got to be adults. <laughs> Um, and, and so uh, our, our authors here say that uh, the, the literacy and education were of concern of first century Jews and were promoted uh, for boys starting from the age of six to seven. Uh, sociologists uh, tell us that uh, ethnic identity among minorities leads them to pursue careful passing on of the ethnic uh, tradition to preserve their way of life. Yeah, so that makes this. sense, right? So here they're, you know, they're an ethnic minority, obviously they're Jewish in a Roman world, right. and they want to keep their culture, and so they want to pass that along, and you have to at least be somewhat cognizant of how to do that, verbally especially, but maybe even in written manner, right? right. And there was... Um, the Old Testament. Right. right? The, the New Testament just didn't appear out of thin air. Right. It was a continued tradition of this this kind of uh, covenant idea of these documents being uh, almost uh, um, agreements between um, the people and God. And so that continued on from uh, the, the Old Testament. We saw that they held up uh, special books in the temple that we call the Old Testament today. Uh, that's how we can know the, the Maccabees aren't in there because the Maccabees were never laid up in the temple as things of authoritative and not saying that they're bad or that they're not good history. They're, they're important pieces. That's where we get the whole Hanukkah from and, yeah, and that yeah. story. Um, but, uh, but the fact that they weren't um, uh, Maccabees, for example, wasn't uh, viewed as uh, God breathed as, as uh, the old and new Testament documents are considered uh, uh, is, is important. It comes from a tradition of a written culture. Exactly. At least some people of that culture wrote things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and also, uh, archaeological discoveries in Galilee dem demonstrated that there was uh, that there was more of a concern with following Jewish practice and legal awareness than was once thought. So we see a historical backdrop of, of that as well. And this assumes a more literate culture, at least at an oral level. Yeah. yeah. And so I know Bart Ehrman has done his uh, book study on this, but other people have done book studies as well, have written books on on this as well, and and shown um, just how different uh, we. Uh, need to think about what an oral tradition or oral society looks like and um, how much better people's memories are, especially yeah, without the right. squirrel. 
yeah. gadget. Yeah. What's that? What's that noise coming from my phone? Yeah. Hold on. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, so we, fewer we, distractions. We, right. That we, kind of stuff. we need to uh, kind of understand this from uh, outside a, a Western twentieth uh, to twenty first century eyes perspective. Yeah. yeah. Good. So. Uh, for instance, Ben Weatherington, our uh, authors tell us, responds pointedly to Ehrman's uh, specific argument that the first disciples were mere illiterate parents. He right. has a couple of points here. First, fishermen <laughs> in that time were not peasants, right? <laughs> they often made a good living from the Sea of Galilee, as can be seen from the famous and large fisherman's house ex- excavated in Bethsaida. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, that, you know, secondly, fishermen were businessmen and uh, they had to either have a scribe or be able to read and write a bit to deal with tax collectors, toll collectors, you know, and other business persons. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, they were businessmen, so they had to have, you know, uh, even they, they might have been backwoods, but, you know. Right, right. Well, there, there's that uh, that joke of um, uh, how do you know that the disciples uh, uh, spoke Greek? Well, if Jesus tells you that you have to carry the Romans pack, uh, uh, not just a mile, but two miles. If you're under legal authority to to do it one mile, you better understand what he's saying. Right. So yeah. we, we at least know what pack in one mile is yeah, in the Greek. Yeah, good. Uh, and then thirdly, uh, uh, if indeed Jesus had like Matthew, right, Levi, and others who were tax collectors as disciples, they were indeed literate. I had to be literate in order to, to do those jobs. And again, they were not peasants, right? In other words, it's a caricature uh, to suggest that all Jesus' disciples were illiterate peasants. Right. Right? right. At what point in history do you stop calling people goat herders and, <laughs> and, and that's all that they were and just, you know, oh, that's all that they did for every moment of their life was just look at goats. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. No, not really. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, in particular, uh, Ehrman uses uh, Peter as an example of this uh, backwards, illiterate peasant who would not have been literate enough to write the Gospels. Hmm. Therefore, Peter serves as a test case for the problems in Ehrman's larger argument concerning the disciples' uh, illiteracy. Apparently, Peter was literate enough to lead and help launch a religious movement that spanned continents by the time of his death. But well, That's you know, amazing, uh, yeah. Right? So, here are thousands and thousands of people that, right. you know, he kind of launched this movement, and yet he's... The claim he is just that yelled at people and that yeah, was it. Yeah. yeah. Grunt it. No, right. I kinda grunted it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, be good. There. <laughs> Done. Gospel presented. So this means he must have been a solid oral communicator at the least, uh, making him potentially capable of expressing himself in letters. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, he was one of Jesus' right hand man, uh, probably uh, got sent out into uh, the, the towns as uh, a leader to figure out what things were, to talk to people. He at least had some idea of that. And uh, we see at least a change, especially after Pentecost with Acts 2, and, yeah. and um, understanding that um, here, here he's preaching to a bunch of people that, uh, um, uh, that, Jesus didn't interact with, but yeah. they all, uh, what, like 2,000 people came to Saving Faith 3, that day? 3,000, I think, yeah. yeah. So, I mean. So, it, you know, and, he, yeah. and the command that he had of the Old Testament, you know. <laughs> right. I mean, did he, where did that come from, right? right? right. You know, he had, he used a lot of verses of prophecy and that sort of thing during that sermon. Mm-hmm. So, you know, was he illiterate? Well, I don't know, but he sure knew the Old Testament. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Unless if the atheist wants to admit that they've beamed into him from the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I mean, I guess if you want to give up that ground for the other ground, then we <laughs> can do that, but uh, we probably don't want to do that. Yeah, so in an oral culture, he need only be able to dictate, uh, for instance, right, in, in order to compose letters. Right. All he had to do was talk. He could have, you know, uh, a secretary. 
Erdman's argument seems uh, trapped in a literary model of communication and not the predominantly oral world of the first century, right? right. Uh, the argument for Peter's illiteracy can also be challenged in light of Peter's role as a merchant tradesman, as we mentioned, right? Mm-hmm. He was a businessman. And what was likely the case with education in the first century among Jews, right? right. So, yeah. So probably not a slave who... Is just day to day. Give us this day our daily bread. That was that was a kind of a a, a prayer for slaves. I mean, he he went out. He had uh, ships. He had boats. He had wife. He had a house. Uh, he had all, all these things um, uh, during John the Baptist um, uh, following, and then um, he at least left some of it or left it in the care of his wife and mother in law and went out and with Jesus. So he at least had he was of some standing at some point in time. He yeah. could go back to it. That's, when um, Christ was crucified, and that's where he found him, was going back to the boats. It's mm-hmm. not like he sold his shares. He was able to kind of just <laughs> keep, keep it right there. So. That's right. Sold his shares. In the, I, I guess. The, I mean, I guess. The, uh, the if, Roman if, stock market. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Ehrman's argument here is that uh, Peter and John were illiterate based on translating uh, agramatai in uh, Acts 4.13 as illiterate. Well, what this does is it completely misses the point. Mm. The word agrametai is the opposite of grammatai, which commonly in the New Testament times denoted formal education, if not professional scribal training. Right. So it wasn't necessarily that they were illiterate, right? That the claim was that uh, the right. the uh, the uh, you know the uh, Jerusalem uh, religious leaders were making. It was that they weren't. They didn't have formal education. Right. right? A person lacked formal or rabbinic schooling. So right. what, who are these men that are telling us, the, the, the learned Jews that know the 420 different rules and on top of that, the other ones, and uh, we're writing the Talmud as we speak. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we've translated the, the, um, the, the um, Hebrew into the Greek for the Old Testament. Who are these men telling us what salvation and yeah, yeah, what the law says yeah. and that kind of right. stuff? Yeah. So therefore, the agramenti can simply mean a person that lacked formal or rabbinic uh, schooling, and right. so right. that's who the audience were that uh, that were decrying uh, Peter and John here. So what is more is in the context of Acts four, uh, it's not the case that authorities were surprised because they thought Peter and John were knowledgeable when in fact they were ignorant. The opposite is true. The authorities were surprised because they thought they would be ignorant. Instead, they proved to be knowledgeable. Right. So it's just the opposite, right? They they were not ignorant, and that's what surprised the authorities, <laughs> right. right? So it's just uh, it's just the opposite of, of of what the claim is here. All right. So nothing discussed up to this point even considers the possible presence of immense stewards um, or secretaries right? Mm-hmm, right. who might have helped New Testament authors put oral Greek into written forms of communication if such uh, help was needed. So these were folks who were professional, you know, writers who could be dictated to and they could write down, you know, what you wanted in your letters and that sort of thing. Sure. Right. Uh, there is a high probability that the New Testament authors, such as Paul, did, in fact, use secretaries. It's certainly possible that Peter did, too. Mm-hmm. Even Erdman admits virtually all of the problems with what I've been calling forgeries can be solved if secretaries were heavily involved in the composition of the early Christian writings, right? right? So, okay, so let's assume they were problem solved. Right. <laughs> I mean, if that's if that's the case, we see it with Paul. Why not? I mean, that's the tradition of 
of Mark and Peter having a close relationship and, and doing that. You have the Roman world, which operates on paperwork, like any good democracy, like any good uh, <laughs> republic. And so um, uh, why wouldn't it have been a business and why couldn't you use them? And especially um, if you're wanting to disseminate this, this, um, um, uh, these, these words out to a broad range of people in an accurate format, why not use the technology of the day? Yeah. yeah. So yes, uh, the, the the Morse code of art art is still available to us today. Well, why don't we use it? Yeah. Well, because we have something better. We're yeah. we're adapting. We're grafting it onto us and helping to get the gospel message out that way. Even though fifty years, no one have heard of the internet, so it's not possible that the internet's used to to pass the gospel. That's right. right. Well, okay, <laughs> maybe it did. Uh, so we see then, um, you know, uh, once this is uh, uh, admitted by Ehrman in uh, his book Forged on page one uh, 134, uh, well, there we go. Problem solved. Yeah. Peter Peter's able and John is able and all the rest of them are able to utilize these scribes. Just, yeah. uh, so moving on to the, the third claim here is that many of the New Testament books were not really written by the authors to whom they were ascribed, despite the internal claims of the books themselves. Instead... They were forged. Right. So they weren't written by, so so John wasn't written by John, Matthew wasn't written by Matthew, and so forth, right? right. Luke wasn't written by Luke, and yeah. so forth, right? They were, these folks were just put their name on these things, right? right. So they were forgeries. We, we, right? we, need, we need the most important people that lived with Jesus at the time, and so obviously, Pe- oh, well, not Peter, not yeah. the Gospel of Peter. Um, yeah. Well, how about, uh, who was that guy, the, the tax collector guy that, the really Gospel no, of James, no. Yeah, uh, no. Matt, uh, <laughs> well, John, John. We'll, we'll put John down. Yeah, John, we're good, and and oh, he, he's still alive. Maybe around this time. Okay, well, okay. So, gotta wait later. Yeah, yeah. So uh, in uh, his book Forged, uh, Erdman has cast aspirations on the uh, traditional authorship of the biblical right. materials by presenting examples of how often forgery was committed. In the second and third centuries, uh, in books what? that were not the New Testament. What, what right? centuries again? Yeah, second and third, oh, okay. right? Yeah. Okay, second and third yeah. centuries. Now, of course, uh, these are looking at other books that are not, you know, the the uh, the New Testament mm-hmm. uh, canon, right? In order to put the New Testament books then in the same category as these later forgery, Erdman dismisses external tradition, contradicts our authors tell us his own arguments, minimizes the influence of secretaries, and constructs a portrait of conflict and diversity in the early church that the early sources do not support. Yeah. Right. Well, that's a, that's a lot of lot of things to just kind of whitewash a little <laughs> yeah, bit. Yeah, but hey, you know, yeah, it's close enough, right? right? <laughs> and so, um, our our authors here look at kind of uh, these these four test cases of of um, Ehrman's claims and uh, response to them. So, um, here's here's uh, the first one. The first one is that First Peter was definitely forged because one, uh, it's an error concerning the author's claim that Peter witnessed Jesus suffering. Oh, he yeah. never witnessed Jesus yeah, suffering. He wasn't at the so cross. Couldn't, couldn't, couldn't have been there. <laughs> didn't see anything. Uh, definitely didn't see Jesus stumble, uh, break his foot, anything yeah, like that. Right. Slapped around by mm. the, the religious leaders, oh, spit well. on. Uh, all right, all right. <laughs> I guess, I guess. So. Uh, and two, uh, because of its use of Babylon as a code word for Rome, which reflects post AD seventy usage. Oh, okay, okay, so so this seems like a, an anachronistic uh, utilage of of uh, a code phrase, and so um, clearly. Of uh, uh, this, this first Peter, Peter is, yeah, is yeah. written way after yeah. when we know he was killed in Rome, and uh, and 
hung upside down, although we kind of know that by church tradition as well. <laughs> okay. So the first argument fails because it defines the suffering of Jesus as just the crucifixion, right? right? And uh, big, big suffering there, yeah, no doubt big, about yeah, it. Yeah, right. But this is too narrow. Our authors tell us. In fact, the available evidence doesn't make clear whether Peter watched the events of the crucifixion from afar. He could have been watching it from afar. He didn't necessarily have to be, you know, right under the cross, right? right? <laughs> yeah. You know, the Galatian women watched it from afar, mm-hmm. right? So, um, uh, yeah, yeah uh, it was put in a centralized location <laughs> yeah. at crossroads for a reason. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, I wonder what those guys did. <laughs> oh, okay. Yes. And also, unlike others, Peter uh, did not flee when Jesus was arrested, right? But saw the arrest and followed him to his Jewish examination to watch from a distance, yeah. right? So he watched, and there, there was suffering there, right? Right, right. exactly. <laughs> uh, so the second argument, uh, likewise, is not as persuasive as it might seem. There's ample biblical and extra-biblical ancient precedent for a world power being named by the use of code language. See, for instance, the book of Daniel Mm. and the way it pictures the world kingdoms and the end time vision. And among other reasons, this was done for in-house purposes. If you're uh, a a persecuted minority group already, uh, if you have the the Jews breathing down your neck because you're slandering them with, uh, they killed our Messiah. And you you don't want the Romans to- And and you definitely don't want the Romans to to, to the fledgling church. Yeah. I mean, uh, hey- uh, uh, Babylon, not not Rome, Babylon. <laughs> yeah, Babylon. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so this uh, in-house purpose to veil the identity of the opposing nation in order to minimize uh, persecution. Yeah. And so there are times when uh, they come out and say, oh, here's you know, Pontius Pilate of Rome, and here's the thing that happened. Uh, but then other times it seems like uh, there are code phrases. And, and, and it was symbolic, right? Babylon was, uh, it was a symbol of a right. nation who had taken over and who was powerful right. and that sort of thing. Yeah. And, of course, that was, you know, right. that was the Roman Empire, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, it's the same thing that... Uh, uh, C.S. Lewis, or uh, uh, I, I would probably besmirch the memory, but uh, Tolkien kind of does that, uh, although he probably said those he, are he, fiction. He, he, he would talk about uh, <laughs> right. myth in, in not a negative sense, but, right, uh, right. but um, we use that in current day uh, language as well. We 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 could uh, also equally refer to the American government as a Romanesque type government. Oh well, Rome fell in the same way that America will fall. Right, so right. you know, it's not like we have to be super super secret, but yeah. you it's easy to draw a parallel between. One of the most well-known world powers, especially in Jewish history, a.k.a. Babylon, and um, compare it to Rome. Yeah. yeah. Uh, also, uh, the Dead Sea community, which mm. are writing Old Qumran. Testament literature. Qumran for instance, community, yes. Which did not survive beyond the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, used similar ter- terminology calling the Romans Kittim. Mm. So, so uh, also, again, using code word language within, within its own ranks. Yeah. So, uh, kind of these two cases fail of, of, um, of looking at uh, uh, the uh, suffering of Christ only at the cross, uh, which uh, Ehrman doesn't prove that uh, there's no way for Peter to see the cross. And also there are other times when Jesus suffered that it um, seems Peter uh, was there. P- Peter could allude to, could see and, and from afar, especially yeah. if he's um, going to be telling his story of how he denied Christ, then that lends to the argument for embarrassment, which uh, people have issue with, but I still think it's a, a pretty positive one. And then we see other people use this code word language for for Rome, and so that seems like uh, this this uh, case is defeated. So yeah. so far, First Peter uh, is uh, still in the running. All right. Well, what about Second Peter? Second Peter was forged 
Clearly. Yeah. Our office tell us, Erdman says. Uh, the, number one, because the notion of a delay in Jesus' return uh, fits a later rather than an earlier setting. Mm-hmm. Right. Secondly, uh, the author makes use of the book of Jude. Shame on him, right? And third, uh, Paul did not claim to write scripture, as Second Peter uh, uh, suggests. So the notion of an authoritative collection of Pauline letters on par with the Old Testament belongs to a later period, right? Wow. And so clearly, uh, this was forged right. later, right? <laughs> well, unfortunately, that uh, the first is, it's true that the notion of the delay of, of Jesus' return belongs exclusively in the later New Testament period, like, you know, a little bit later. Uh, in fact, the evidence points to the contrary. First uh, Thessalonians, which most scholars accept as having been written by Paul in early 8050s, shows a church anxious about issues uh, surrounding Jesus' return. Um, here's all these people being lazy, not yeah, working. Yeah. We're just waiting for Christ's return. Yeah. We're told that it's any day now. <laughs> well, okay, if you're not going to work, you're not going to eat. So good luck with that. <laughs> so there's there's uh, our, our indictment against uh, socialism right there. <laughs> uh, and there are questions as to whether the events had already happened or had been delayed, and believers were urged to hold on to their faith diligently until the second coming. So yeah. that's what that's what First Thessalonians, a very early letter, uh, probably maybe even predating some of the Gospels. Right, right. So has it happened yet? Is the question they were asking. <laughs> right. Right? Did we miss yeah. it? Kind so it's of not thing, an right? anachronism yeah. for Second Peter to also include that as well. Especially you have two different groups of people that they're talking to. Yeah. Second, uh, Peter's use of some of Jude's material shows the unity of the biblical writers, (laughs) right? right? Indicating that Peter was not above drawing on the teaching of others if it advanced the cause of the gospel in in a given situation. Right, right. right. So it just showed Peter's humility. It showed that uh, he accepted what Jude had to say. You know, so that doesn't seem like a, a big problem in terms of, oh, it was written later because Peter wouldn't have quoted Jude. Right. right. Well, and, and we, d- we don't have the same critique when it comes to Luke. Oh, Luke is just using these uh, witnesses. <laughs> oh, okay. I yeah. mean, uh, sure, that's that's exactly what he's doing. Uh, and the Holy Spirit utilized his writings and those witnesses to produce the Gospel of Luke and also uh, the Book of Acts. Yeah. Third, Paul insisted on his authority as an apostle from the moment he wrote his New Testament <laughs> right. letters, right? The word Trinity isn't in the Bible. <laughs> yeah. this, is, this is that argument. Yeah. Uh, one only has to look at the tone of Galatians, for instance, right? Uh, right. And it's, uh, you know, some say it was written in the late 40s or early 50s. Or the direct claims in 1 Thessalonians and First and 2 Corinthians, right? right? Uh, so, for instance, in 1 Thessalonians 4.15, Paul writes, For we say this to you by a revelation from the Lord. So, Paul there is claiming that what he has to say is direct, it seems anyway, direct revelation from the Lord. Right. Right? And so, he had authority to say it. Right. right? Well, I, I think Galatians 1 is, is the biggest one. So, not only is 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 Paul claiming that um, that he's providing an accurate um, uh, uh, God-word-directed testimony about what the gospel is, but he says, even if I or an angel of light preach any other gospel unto you, let that person be anathema, damned, get cut off. Right. Uh, so even, even if Paul himself were to suddenly become intoxicated or fall in his head or uh, uh, become so uh, uh, paid off by the Jewish leaders that he's like, listen— <laughs> Uh, I talked to God and he said, go back to the old ways. Uh, it's fine. 
he, he should be anathematized. Right, so right, he should right. be damned to hell in that right. same manner. He should be cut off so from the So what he preached was authoritative. It yeah. was from God, right? right? In um, second, uh, or in First Thessalonians, right, 4.15, um, we see that quote. And also in uh, First Corinthians mm-hmm. 2.13, Paul asserts, We also speak these things not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people, right? So the source, again, was the Spirit right. of what he had to say. Yeah. So, so, so yeah, Paul clearly saw his, um, you know, his what he had to say in his writings as authoritative in terms of being an apostle. Right, right. So this is the, the Muslim coming up to you and saying, show me in the Bible where Jesus says, I am God, follow after me. Right, okay. right. Well, if you're looking for me to, to do my quotes and then do my search function, right, okay, I agree. So it's true. Paul did not say, I am writing scripture. Okay. But he did say that disagreeing with him about the gospel was grounds for subject to anathema, a strong rebuke, and not only disagreeing with him, but disagreeing with the message mm-hmm. so much that if he came against it later on, even more so for him. All right. So not only that, but even if an angel were to proclaim another gospel. So right. here's this heavenly being, angel, light, uh, listen to me, uh, sacrifice uh, uh, to animals a couple more times, you'll be good. Or <laughs> um, circumcise yourself first, you must be Jewish first, and then uh, you you get into the Christian road from from the Jewish, Jewish road there, yeah. the Jewish entrance. No. Incorrect. Anathematized. <laughs> Paul's words sounds like they were penned by someone confident he was proclaiming the word of God. Right. Might not agree with it, but uh, it's it's more it's more nuanced than I am writing scripture. Yeah. Find that for me. <laughs> okay. Well, find the word Trinity in there. Well, all, all of a sudden the Christians started learning about this three in one. Oh, okay. Yeah. Finally, if Second uh, Peter was a forgery by an unknown author. Uh, why did he? Why would he have done it? Right? What was his motive? Right? In Second Peter, uh, there seems to be no convincing reason why the Orthodox would need to forge this letter and slip it into the canon, since it has no evident, uh, you know, heteroxial, heterodoxical. I'm sorry, uh, agenda. Right? Right. In other words, it, it's it's not a uh, the it's the motive isn't to kind of change what the teaching should be. Right. And go against the orthodox. Right. right? <laughs> uh, it bears no clear resemblance to any other pseudo Petrine literature. Right. That is literature that's falsely claimed right. as Peter's Peter author. Or something yeah. Like that. Yeah. And it exhibits no references to any of the second century doctrinal controversies. There's right. none. Right. There's right. no reference. Jesus to... doesn't have a body. <laughs> Not all of a sudden. First Peter or second Peter one. Yeah. <laughs> right. hey, remember when he talked about Christ risen? What I meant was like this, this, this uh, metaphorical body. Not, not, no, that would have been something that was like, okay, this, this is a little weird. Yeah. yeah. Um, or the old Testament isn't, you know, from God. <laughs> right. right? We, it's we from this demiurge yeah. that, that <laughs> looks upon humanity and Jesus comes yeah. to soothe that savage beast yeah. yeah so notice none of that stuff was was right. uh was talked about in peter so why would he have done it you know <laughs> right. what's the motive right so in view of the evidence presented uh second peter was likely included in the canon for simple but less scandalous reason right peter actually wrote it oh, man. Right. <laughs> right. all right um our third test case uh, uh 
now we now we get to pick on uh, Paul a little bit. So uh, Second Thessalonians cannot be by the same writer as First Thessalonians. Why? It's because First Thessalonians defends an intense belief in the imminence of Jesus' return, while Second Thessalonians argues that certain things must happen first. Oh, okay. So Second Thessalonians points to e- to events associated with Jesus' return, events that precede the re- this return, and events that indicate the return has not yet come as some are arguing uh, in Second uh, Thessalonians 2, mm. the first couple of verses. Yeah. So, you know, the impression is that the return comes on the heels of events that triggered that return in such a way that these intervening events do not supply a long interruption or roadblock to the return, but simply accompany it as it approaches quickly, right? right? <laughs> so the idea here is, here's the problem. Uh, is Christ's return imminent or do there have to be some events that happen before he returns? And the answer is yes. Right. Yeah. yeah th- th- <laughs> right. There's nothing to say that the, those two things are completely uh, opposite of each right, other. Right. So notice these events that would happen before his return could happen just immediately before his return. And that uh, solves the issue. My, right? I'm, I'm, I'm going to eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I'm, I'm really hungry. I'm going to do that right now because I'm super hungry. First, I got to get out the bread and then the peanut butter and then the jelly. Then I got to make the sandwich mm. and then I have to eat it. Yeah. Well, which is it, Patrick? Wh- <laughs> what, are you what, eating it now or are you, are you, or are you, you have to get bread? Oh, and yeah. 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 Ridiculous. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so the absence of these accompanying events simply means that the day of the Lord had uh, not yet come, but say, it says nothing about how close it is. Right. 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 Uh, so, you know, they suggest, our author suggests that Ergman here is exaggerating the difference between these two. Right, especially since it seems like once the church age happens, uh, that's when, uh, at least um, probably uh, um, post-apostolic documents of of the New Testament, it seems like the the end times is considered at that point. So Jesus could come at any moment, but also there'll be these events that happen. Yeah, yeah. So the tension between soon and not so soon because other things will occur first is not only found in Paul, but also built into the understanding of the last days in the early church at large. Mm. For example, compare Matthew 20, uh, 24, 33, uh, when it says, you will see all these things he is near with the next couple verses, uh, 24, 44. You must also be ready because the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Right. So, so there's that same right. tension there, right? These things must happen, mm-hmm. and then but it's going to happen. But there's right. an immediate, uh, you know, return. Right. Yeah, imminent yeah. return, right. rather. Yeah. So first and second Thessalonians deal with opposite elements in this inherent tensions in Paul's end times teaching, which if if you're if you get one, you're like, oh, okay, so it's it's near or. Uh, there's no other events that happen. And then Paul can write a letter that addresses that opposite feeling. Okay, well, here's here's the other part to it. Th- things have to happen first before, but it is near, and these things could happen, boom, right at, one right after another. Right, right. So the end could come at any time, but would ensure alongside, uh, ensue alongside major spiritual deterioration and desecration. And especially if you're looking at second, third century, you have all these false teachers, you have the Gnostics coming in, uh, uh, the third, fourth century, you have uh, the Romans come in, burning books, uh, you know, uh, fall of Jerusalem, <laughs> AD 70. I mean, all these things could really jumpstart your emotions. And so uh, um, Paul is going to say, yes, all these things could be the thing that capsizes the, the whole shebang and Jesus could return. Or here's some other things to look at when you're in the midst of 
World War One, World right. War Two, the nuclear age, you know, <laughs> even, even more so. So it's imminent, but yet there are things that need to happen uh, just prior, we could, one could argue, right. before it happens, right? Right. All right, well, what about test case four, right? Paul did not write Ephesians because the style, mainly sentence length, <laughs> all right? Vocabulary and theology are distinct from his other letters, right. so he didn't write it. So Urban here argues that Ephesians uh, uses 116 words not present elsewhere in Paul's um, writings, and it shows its likely authorship by someone other than Paul. Paul, you know, only had a limited vocabulary, right? And so he could only use just these few words. Yeah, no so other. if he used more more than that, then, you know. Outside. It must have been somebody. Flag on the play. <laughs> right. He goes on to note that this amount of unique vocabulary is 50% more than, for instance, uh, Philippians, which he claims is about the same length as Ephesians, yeah. right? <laughs> well, especially when, when, when we're, we're being introduced to Paul and, you know, he comes from Rome, yeah. you know, the, 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 Mecca, the Mecca of the time uh, of, of writing, and then he has a, a, a well-known uh, teacher in the Jewish culture. I mean, the, the fact that these things happen, and then once we, we're, we'll figure out more and more about why Paul can be trusted to write more than eight words. Um, <laughs> it's it's, it's, over it's over. interesting how, how uh, um, um, unique Paul is uh, to, to be a person that Ehrman attacks. And yeah, so yeah. so we'll, we'll, we'll look at this here. So a closer look reveals this is inaccurate. Shocking. Yeah. Mm, uh, Philippians has 104 verses, while Ephesians has 155 so verses. So it is longer than Ephesians, mm. uh, than Philippians. So they're not comparable in terms right. of length, right? In terms of Greek words, the ratio is 1629 to 2422 words. Oh, okay, so even a little significant. So, right. Yeah, so yeah. believe it or not, Greek Different than English. <laughs> Ephesians is 33% longer than Philippians. Right. What does this matter? I, I, mm-hmm. I don't understand why this was a, a, a point that anyone's going to hang their hat on, but <laughs> they do. Uh, once this mischaracterization is corrected, the number of distinct words in Ephesians is not so high, especially since the letter discusses elements of ministry not covered in such detail elsewhere, and the letter is less focused on local concerns. Right, so Philippians is focused on local concerns. Ephesians is kind of a general type of letter. It's talking about different things. So clearly, different words being used uh, is not out of the question, right? right? Yeah. Yeah. What's more, the amount of special vocabulary in Ephesians is not inordinate, right? But in keeping with the present, uh, the presence of a unique vocabulary in Paul's other letters. For example, Ephesians has 41 words not found elsewhere in the New Testament, right? And 84 not found elsewhere in Paul. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, so Paul didn't write it? Well, <laughs> the number for Galatians is 35, Right, not found in uh, elsewhere in the New Testament, right. and ninety nine not found elsewhere in Paul. Right? right, and so this is a comparable amount. Yet, virtually no one doubts that Paul wrote Galatians. Right, right. right. And Paul is is a, a Greek wordsmith who actually makes up words that are not found in any uh, dictionary, Greek dictionary, lexicon, or anything. Mm-hmm. The, the fact that he uses a, a, a nuanced word to describe uh, both parties of the homosexual uh, uh, relationship uh, to, to be used as one word that's never found in any other piece of Greek mm-hmm. literature we have shows that he, he can do what 
pr- pretty much Greek wordsmith said. It's 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 what's done in in Japanese cultures as well as is coming up with new characters to represent a, a, the same word, but maybe a little nuance or difference. Mm. Mm. And so um, Paul is doing the same thing that someone who has command of the language, the, the Greek language, can do. Okay, well, uh, there, there's nothing here that precludes it. <laughs> very odd. Very very odd. Uh, portion of, of this book because they're referring to Ehrman's weird fixation on this. I don't Maybe he understands it better than I do. Okay. <laughs> Finally, Ehrman stresses the theological distinctiveness of this letter. Okay, and this I can get behind. So mm-hmm. it's so distinct. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's a letter of most decisiveness. So here Ehrman uses three examples, uh, Paul and works of the flesh, saved, and being raised. So those are the three uh, terminologies that he focuses on. Paul using Works of the flesh, saved, and being raised. Okay, so uh, works of the fresh flesh. Uh, Erwin argues that Ephesians presents Paul as carried away by lust of the flesh, apparently citing Ephesians 2.3. Uh, Erwin contrasts this with Paul's claim in Philippians 3.4 that Paul was blameless with reference to the law. Mm. He says, in effect, that the same person cannot have both things. So Paul is this wild man who cannot control all these random desires. He's he's out there. He's looking at women. He's doing other things. He's just he's wanting to gamble. He's wanting to overeat. All these things. He just can't. But then he's like, "Well, I am blameless before the law." Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So so what Erdman <laughs> fails uh, to note are two key points our authors tell us. Uh, Ephesians two. 1 through 10 is not strictly a biological reference, but an ethnic reference to the Jews and the Gentiles, right? So Paul wasn't specifically saying this about himself, right? What Erdman casts as a biological portrayal of Paul is actually a general remark about Jews in which Paul includes himself, Mm -hmm. right, as a way of identifying with his readers, right? Right. And so, uh, you know, so that kind of explains what's going on there, right? Right. Uh, next, uh, saved, uh, Ehrman argues that save conveys only this, this, uh, future sense of Paul that we will be saved, but we're not saved. The idea of having life in the here and now in relation to uh, being saved is not as, uh, absent in Paul's writing as Ehrman alleges though. Hmm. So in Romans six, the passage Ehrman cites, uh, Paul used the picture of baptism to convey the notion of moving out of death into life. You know, you're, you're, you're washed, your sins are washed away. Your, your old person is gone. And here's, here's your new person. That's right. You're saved. Right. <laughs> uh, Paul does not intend to say that we die now and are raised to life only later. Paul intends to say that we die now and are raised into life now, now. Yeah. while waiting future resurrection. And, and this is clear in the Old Testament. This is clear in the New Testament. It's always a now and not yet and will be. Yeah. So I, am, I, have, I have been sanctified. I am being sanctified. And I will be sanctified. That's, those right. are clear uh, you do it with justification i am being just i have been justified at the cross i am justified now currently even though the cross was back then and i will be justified ultimately on the last day yeah, yeah so i yeah. mean th- this is this is clear christian this doctrinal teaching that yeah. that's that's been there that that uh, i'm kind of surprised that he he doesn't want to allude to or say at least uh, 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 you know, modern preachers have expanded upon this and falsely attributed this now and not yet. But I mean, that's what that's what prophecy in the Old Testament was. It's always a now and not yet. That's yeah. that's exactly yeah. what it was. This to- yeah. topology of, of prophecy. So, but, so what about the term raised? Well, the previous uh, rubric leads directly to the terminology of being raised, right? 
Uh, is it true that that for Paul, the notion of resurrection is strictly future, so that any present application is unpauline? Well, no, of <laughs> no. course not. In Romans four twenty five, Paul says Jesus was delivered up for our trans. Uh, trespasses and raised for our justification. In Romans 3, uh, 22 through 26, Paul ties justification to faith rather than to the, uh, you know, to the uh, end time future. Right. Right. So this shows that Paul, for Paul anyway, resurrection is not strictly about the future. It is, but not strictly about the future, but also has to do with how God delivers a person in response to his or her present faith. Right. Right. The, the dead man has gone, put, to take off your old clothes and put on the, the new flesh. Mm. You're, you're a new creation. Those are all future, they're all present, and they're all looking forward to the ultimate bodily resurrection, the glorified body resurrection, and the life of sinless perfection that we will have uh, in, in the, the, the glorious appearance in the, yeah. the, the end times, in the, in the final judgment. So this survey has demonstrated that Ehrman has not made a compelling case for New Testament forgeries. He has not even come close. The weaknesses of Ehrman's arguments combined with early church leaders' distaste for uh, pseudonymity uh, activity, the fact that the church had, had her anathema up to uh, watch for their antenna to watch uh, for forgeries means the burden of proof continues to remain on the skeptic in proving the forgeries uh, made it into the New Testament. And right. so... Um, you know, we, we see um, the, the very fact that we can recognize the, the, the Gnostics coming in, um, the even uh, proto-Gnostics within the New Testament, and then um, the, the, the fight for the, the, the faith to, to keep out these uh, false teachers um, uh, within the history of Christianity uh, shows true. And what, what's the reference back to? It's not, oh, this is logically inconsistent. It's always a point back to Scripture. It's always mm-hmm. a point back to what the, the apostles taught. It's what the early church fathers did. They they refer back to the, exactly. the, the not not to so the that, church, right, right, but the, to the, the, the what the apostles had to say is the end of the matter, right? right? And so they always refer back to that. Right. That was their authority, right? right. Yeah. Good. All right. Um, so uh, we have uh, two more claims, uh, claim four and five, and uh, we'll be covering those next time. So hopefully uh, you've uh, enjoyed this and um, continue to watch, pick up the book, Truth in the Culture of Doubt. Uh, the links are in the description below. And uh, we'll see you next time. See you next time.